Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. Today is an episode I am super stoked about because it's uh, two of my favorite people in music. We've got Mr. Sammy Duet, who is a guitar player for the legendary Goat Whore. He has some of the best tone I've ever heard in my entire life. And of course, Kurt Ballou, who is, you know, a URM vet, legendary producer, guitar player for Converge. He's known for... His businesses, such as God City Instruments, and he's just done a ton of stuff, uh, including that he mixed Angels Hung from the Arches of Heaven, the latest Gohor album, and it sounds incredible. I love it, which is why I wanted to speak to the two of them about it. Let's do it. Sammy Duet and Kurt Ballou, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Al. Likewise, likewise. I want to say I don't really like fanboy on this podcast or anything, ever, but I really do love the work that you guys did together. That's why I wanted to do this, because I like all the goat horror stuff, but since I've toured with you so much, like I know what you guys sound like live, and I always felt like... That was never quite captured. Like, your records sound good, but it was never quite like, you know, the goat whore that I've seen like 150 times, I never heard on record. And then I heard this mix and was like, yes, finally. Oh, yeah, thank you. We worked hard on it. It's all Kurt's fault. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I feel like it's all your fault <laughs> pushing me. Well, I mean, you know, I knew you had it in you. So to be honest with you, Kirk, and I told you this before, you know, this is the sound that I always heard it in my head that Goat Horse should sound like. And I'm not talking trash about any of the guys that did any of our other albums, you know, because they did fantastic jobs with them. But there was always that thing that you do 
that you can't explain, that only you know. It's something that's inside your brain that you achieve with all these bands that you work with that bring this. It's like the only way I could really describe it is it's raw, but it's polished, if that makes any sense. Raw and modern at the same time, which is hard. It like shouldn't exist in the same world because you imagine modern to be like you imagine modern to be like that hyper polished kind of stuff like that my partner Joey would mix or something or like a Zach Cervini style mix or something like just stuff that you would hear that's like hyper commercial or something you think of raw as sounding like shit often but so when you have awesome modern and raw at the same time it's like these two things that shouldn't exist but Kurt sounds like you have an opinion on this Oh, I was just going to say, like, my musical life has always been a total fucking paradox. Like, I've never allowed myself or even wanted to fall on either side of the fence with regards to anything modern or, or vintage or classic or hardcore or punk or metal or whatever. Like, I don't care about any of that shit. Like, I just want to do what what moves me and what makes, you know, what makes me feel something. And that causes me to just sort of always exist between worlds and i think you know whether it's my band or whether it's my productions and stuff that's just how it's always been for me and i'm comfortable with that type of music that isn't boilerplate you know i'm comfortable with faced with a challenge of like finding the cracks between things and exploiting those rather than like finding how to put something in its lane like i don't there's all, there's people that are much better at me than doing that sort of thing. But where I think I excel is like at, you know, finding the space between other things. So finding the space for this, though, sounds like there was a lot of pushing to get there. Yeah. I mean, Goat Horror is definitely a band that exists between worlds. And, you know, Sammy is a very unique player and a unique person. And to give him some sort of boilerplate sound wouldn't be appropriate. It's not what he wants. It's not exciting and it's not fun for anybody. But yeah, like like he was saying earlier, words are clumsy, right? We've got ideas in our head. We've got these sounds we hear in our ears and we've got to take that stuff. We've got to convert it to words. We've got to explain it to somebody else using those words. And they've got to take those words and then somehow convert that into a meaning and then take that meaning and then like get it out on gear. There's so many translations involved that it's uh, it's a challenge and it takes a while to understand each other and it takes a while to go through all sorts of different experiments before you find the right thing. Sammy, on your end, do you remember at what point it started to click with the mixes? Kurt had sent us some rough mixes early on. It just sounded really good. Then we started... Getting into like, okay, we ought to get serious with this now. There was a couple of things that needed a little bit of adjusting, but I mean, it wasn't much. It was relatively painless compared to some of the other records I've made trying to explain the sound that I'm hearing in my head of how the record should sound to other guys. And I, I you know, I knew that Kirk could do it. Let's just put it that way. And I knew that was our guy. I mean, we tried to work with him on the last record before, but scheduling didn't work out. Like Kirk said, it's it's really sometimes, you know, it's hard to explain what you want with someone else understanding what you're explaining when you don't when you I have no knowledge of doing any sort of mixing or anything like that. I wish I did. That would make things a lot easier on my part to explain where I want things to go. You know what I'm saying? That's actually why I started recording. Like I was just a guitar player in a band and I felt like I didn't have the ability to express myself. So I thought that if I started like learning about recording that when I was in situations 
working with a recording engineer that I'd be able to explain myself better. How did that work out? Well, <laughs> I <laughs> since realized that trying to communicate with someone in their language is not like when you're a novice and they're like a, an expert is not always the best way to communicate yourself. Like it's better to just kind of communicate your goals and words and to provide examples than it is to try to tell someone like, I need a DB and a half less 2.2 kilohertz when you don't necessarily understand all their gain staging and, yeah. and what they're going for with all the other instruments. So I would say that the people that I find most frustrating to deal with in the studio are oftentimes like people... <laughs> who are recording people. That makes sense. They're trying to talk in the same language as me. And it's usually easier for me to just like talk in terms of feelings and provide references of sounds and stuff like that than it is to say like, you know, to use like a plug in or a piece of outboard or something that somebody likes. They're like, well, you know, I really, I really got the sound that I liked one time using like microphone X or cabinet Y or compressor Z or whatever, you know, it's like everything's different on every single day. You know, the way you chain everything together, the way it's all gain stage, the single path, how it interacts with other elements of the mix. Like there's never just like that solution that worked in one instance is not necessarily going to work and probably won't work in another instance. So it's, I don't like it when someone gets like really tied to the idea of like, we got to use a certain piece of gear to get a certain sound. I remember that. Yeah. I think that like some people who've like been involved in recording for a couple of years might, might have some ideas about what to do. Um, and it's all, all based on trying to be productive. They have the goal of, you know, getting over the finish line in mind and they're trying to be helpful. Um, but sometimes it's not, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. I honestly, from my memory of producing band, that was the most annoying thing was when a band would have a novice producer because of that exact reason is they'd be trying to help, but would be like exerting themselves in ways they shouldn't have been. Microphones, outboard gear. I mean, I think honestly, sometimes that stuff's cool though, because like a lot of times there's decisions that are just arbitrary and you got to make a decision and then build upon that, like listen to whatever's going on and then build upon whatever decisions have been made previously. And so like if somebody comes in and they tell me like, we're definitely using this guitar or like we're definitely using that mic, oftentimes it's like, okay, fine. If that makes you happy, we can use that. And then we'll, we'll just continue to make decisions and build upon that based on what we came up with originally. Do you think there has to be some sort of like, I guess, subconscious alignment in terms of aesthetics go? Because Sammy, you're talking about trying to explain stuff to someone who just won't understand. And I've had that experience too in Doth of like having people mix us where they're good. They know how to mix. It's not an issue of them knowing how to mix or not knowing how to mix. It's not an issue of us being a good band or not being a good band. It's just an issue of, I want one thing. They have a whole other understanding of what things should sound like and what they want things to sound like. And our tastes are just not compatible. I have a theory that you have to have compatible aesthetics to begin with. And from there, you can get the technical stuff right. But if the aesthetics aren't already there, if you're not in alignment on that, it's going to be a tougher process. It pretty much going to end up in a disaster because, I mean, it would be like somebody that would 
be okay. Let me try to hypothetical situation. If Gold Whore went to a guy that just did like a rock record and he had no idea of what type of music we were playing with or, you know, all that stuff, you have to have somebody that sort of has an idea of what the hell is going on with extreme music. It's possible to come up with a good product, but you got to kind of meet halfway. And I think a lot of the problem is one side's leaning more towards their side than the other. And it's basically you have to work together and make it come out. But yes, the trick is to find someone who gets it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes bands will hire a producer who's trying to bring something out of that band that is different than the band is comfortable with or what the band wants. And like, I think it's a, a lot about knowing your audience. Sometimes producers think they work for the record labels. Sometimes producers think they work for the bands and the band and the record label might have different goals of the album. And you can end up with some conflicts for situations like that. Like it's always, it's always a little weird when like sometimes a label will send me mix notes that contradict things a band will send me. And I'm like, oh, okay, you you all need to get on the same page and then tell me what to do. I don't want to be like, in the mix stage, I don't want to be like an arbitrator between a record label and a band. Do you tell them to get on the same page? Like, what's the protocol? Yeah, like, if I'm a mixer only, not a producer, then, you know, it's a technical job. And I, I need for them to tell me who I work for. <laughs> you know, am I, am I working for the label? Am I working for the band? Like, what is, obviously, like, the label's probably paying me, but, like, who gets the last word? I don't try to make it like a... Who wins? I try to get them to build consensus amongst themselves and then tell me what to do. It's always tricky. Like if you get a lot of mixed notes, even like within a band, you know, you might get like the bass player saying one thing and the drummer saying something else. And so I try to get everybody involved in the project to consolidate their mixed notes and give me one email with all the mixed notes so that I can um, not be being pulled in two different directions at once. Sammy, I'm curious on your end in Goat Whore, you guys, the way you guys communicate or like your goals internally for something like the mix is it something that you guys all discussed or is it just like some understanding like how do you guys get on the same page there's a little bit of both you know because before we went in to do this record i definitely had a clear vision of how it should sound and i sat down with all the guys and we had, i think we were doing some shows before we went in to record we spent a lot of time you know you know how it is when you're on tour you're sitting around doing nothing for a lot of the time so a lot of that time we sat down and just talked about the record of what everybody was looking for and stuff you know and as you said as well, we all pretty much know how it should sound. What role does the label play in this situation? They pretty much trust us to do anything we want at this point. We haven't given them something yet to where they were like, well, I don't know about this, guys, you know, even like mix wise or anything, you know, everything that we've handed them, they were like, this is great. This is amazing. There were definitely instances where Brian Slagle have told certain bands when they turned in their record to where it's like, this does not sound good and you need to fix this. I mean, you know, <laughs> shit happens. Yeah, I mean, he is the boss, essentially, you know. But, I mean, they've never really given us any sort of, like, guidelines or anything like this, you know. Because he'll be the last one to hear the record and be like, this needs to be fixed or whatever. I mean, I think, I forget what record it was, and this is the only comment he's ever made to us. And I love him for saying this. He heard the final mix, and he's like, I think the guitar's need to be louder. Well, and I was like, I agree cool. with you. 
<laughs> That's a mixed note I can get behind. That's the only comment they've ever given us on a mix ever. I think that like most of the metal labels are relatively hands off. It's more odd for them to try to exert the kind of control that like a pop label, from my experience, metal labels tend to know who they're signing and trust who they're signing for the most part. That's when they get to make the decision. Yeah. I'm sure if we turned in a fucking record that sounded like it was recorded on a four track and said, uh, this is what we're going for now, they would definitely be like, no. Yeah. And fair enough. <laughs> Sometimes like things like weird, like bait and switch things happen where like a band gets signed on a demo that's like where they worked with one producer and maybe the label and maybe the band even didn't realize how much work behind the scenes the producer did. And so it sounds one way and then they go and work with someone else and it sounds completely different. And the, the label's like, whoa, this is not what we signed up for. Like I can, I can understand that stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If you're getting signed off of a demo and the label really, really is into that demo, like whatever you were doing, the urge to like, quote unquote, upgrade, they should really think that through because what you're signing is a product of everything that went into it. And if uh, you do something as big as replace the producer. Yeah, people get stuck on this thing where like, oh yeah, we've got some like money behind us. We're going to level up. And they like just totally lose sight of like the loyalty that they have to the people that have been around them and have helped them along the way. I've seen it happen a lot of times. It's just kind of sad. Yeah. Before we did this record, the management and the record label were trying to, well, I wouldn't say they were trying to push this guy on us, but they were suggesting that we use this guy and he shall remain nameless. And he did a bunch of like big records and just and stuff. And I'll not tell you what bands he did. You know, we sat down and we thought about it for a minute. And I was like, I don't think that would be really a good idea to have this guy come in and try to clean everything up because this record, you know, I knew on this record, it had to be vicious. And if they would have came in and kind of brought in this producer guy that was going to do the record and all this stuff that did all these big records that charted all great and all this stuff. And I I just feel that would have took away from this record more than added to it. I always wonder like with big name people, are they the ones that are making that those records successful or are those records successful in spite of them? I mean, that's a big part of it as well. I mean, you could have the best sounding record on the planet, but if the songs aren't there, it's just not there. Like actually this, this record is kind of an example of that. Like you used a big name mastering engineer. And I think in this case, it was like the exception to the rule. I think Ted did an awesome job mastering it, but most of my experience with like big name mastering engineers has not been great. Same. Ted being the exception. Yes. I mean, thank you, AL, for that uh, suggestion, by the way. But, like, when I was talking to Ted, you know, and I brought your name up, Kurt, and he was like, I love mastering Kurt's records. And I was like, all right, well, this will probably go pretty well because he's familiar with your work and he knows what to do with your mixes, which obviously he did, you know. He didn't really do that much, which was nice because I feel like mastering engineers either do nothing or feel like they need to put their stamp on something and he just did what was what was necessary and nothing else that's why i suggested him was because sammy when you told me that all you wanted was for it to be like louder that's exactly what he did when he mixed my band's record the colin richardson mix sounds just like the master but maybe a little quieter but that's it like ted just he just made it louder which in my experience getting stuff mastered 
that never happens. Like I'm used to people just mangling the shit out of mixes. And I just remember Ted just, he just took a great mix and made it louder. Yeah. When I was talking to you, we were getting test masters from a bunch of different guys. They were, you know, I would compare them to the actual mix, the final mix that Kirk sent. And I was like, they're actually taking away from the mix more than actually making it more. And that's why I was getting really discouraged for a while because, I mean, the final mix that Kirk did, I was so ecstatic about it that I didn't want, I, I was <laughs> almost contemplating not getting it mastered at all if that was a possibility. The Iron Maiden move? Yeah. Did they do that? I forget which record it was. It was probably about 10, 15 years ago. They put out a record where they like made a big to-do about not getting the record mastered. I don't know if they actually know what they're talking about. I never really bothered to look at the liner notes, but maybe it's just like the mix engineer like mastered it or something as part of the mixing process. Or I don't know. It never sounded like a quiet record to me or anything like that. In the marketing speak, they were like, we didn't get our record mastered. Yeah. I mean, technically they had to if it got reproduced. So it has to be right. It has to be. It got manufactured. Yeah. It was like in some way mastered. Maybe they just mean that there wasn't like the typical like pre-mastering process. Probably was like an aesthetic thing. Like there wasn't an obscene amount of bus compression or something. Who knows? Like that probably what they meant. But I understand, Sammy, I understand where you're coming from with that inclination because I mean that's the reason that so many mixing engineers start to master their own work. That's why it's become a thing is because people got sick of having their mixes ruined. From my understanding of where the trend of mixers mastering their own stuff, where it originated, it originated from enough people getting sick of giving their stuff to a big name dude and it coming back sounding like shit. And I think that that happened enough times to where people were like, fuck it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna learn. My problem with like the big name Master engineers has not been so much like it's sounding like shit. It's just that when you're mastering huge budget projects and then my little thing comes along, I feel like my project is just like a small fish in a big pond kind of situation where like I did a record a couple of years ago with a, another, you know, big name mastering engineer who's like a peer of, of Ted's. And we didn't get to talk to the mastering engineer once. All information was relayed through an assistant. We sent in mixes. And then we received masters back and received a bill. And there was no like, you know, here's a test pass. What do you think? Let me do a song and let me show you a couple different options. There was none of that. It was just like, here's your master, here's your bill. And it sounded fine, but like, I don't know. You just like, musicians just want to feel like they're important. <laughs> and that the work that they're doing, that the art that they're putting on an album is valued by the people that they're working with. And you just need like a little bit of attention in order to feel like that's the case. And, you know, I haven't gotten a lot of attention from big name people, whereas like sort of like the mid-level people that I usually work with are you know, are great. And they're going to try, they're going to, they're going to put a lot more effort in the projects that I send to them are important to them. They're going to put the effort in and they're going to listen to me when I have suggestions and they, they want to hear that. I want to clarify something I said by it coming back, sounding like shit. I didn't mean that it actually sounds like garbage. Like if someone never masters extreme music and all oh, they, they master like pop all day, the low end is going to come back a little weird. And if you're not getting any revisions, then you're stuck with a weird low end that you paid thousands of dollars for. That's the other thing is it's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive, no revisions. And this is 
this kind of music, you need revisions. Like you just need revisions. Yeah. And the, the thing about the revisions too, is usually master engineers first instincts are usually really good. Usually the revisions get worse before they get better. So I think that's the case with mixing too. You've got to have sufficient budget and patience to go through several rounds of revision if you're going to start doing revisions. And like I did a record a couple of years ago that was mastered by a well-known master engineer and no one was in love with the revisions and we ended up having to just go with the first pass. And that was because of like a, a schedule and a budget constraint. I mean, I know everything's on a budget and everything's on a schedule, but it's not like a, a fun way to make a record where you're like mastering is finished when you have given up, not when everybody's excited. Yeah, it's a bum out situation. Also, I think it's an old school thing, the revisions thing. Yeah. And so lots of the big name people are older. They've had, you know, they've worked long to get to that position. They come from the older music industry. Well, artists weren't even consulted. Yeah. But on mixes too, on mixes too, man, I've heard of a, no naming names, but a mixer that is one of the biggest out there. We all know who he is and he's great. Someone I know just had him mix a record and we're talking tens of thousands of dollars for the mix. They wanted revisions the dude flipped the fuck out over the suggestion of revisions. Flipped the fuck out, like screaming phone call. Like, how dare you? Yeah, it's just not, you just can't have that attitude if you want to work with people. It's old school music industry, man. You know, I just I just listened to a, a podcast with John Frusciante like a couple weeks ago, and he said that the Chili Peppers were not involved in the mixing of Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Wow. That's insane, right? Yes. I mean, it's the, the producer was, obviously, but like the band wasn't involved. Or at least that's what he said in the interview, which just sounds, it's insane to me. That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's the old school music industry. Yeah. yeah. You hear all the time, too, about how like record labels, they'll just remix stuff because they own the masters and they can remix it if they want. Like Albini hit me up the other day, actually, because I've been like poking around about Atmos lately mm-hmm. just sort of trying to figure out, like, is this a thing that is worth investing any time or money into? It might be. Right now, I'm leaning towards it being a multi-level marketing scheme, selling music and also selling speakers and converters and monitor controllers and all that. It might be that. Tough to say. But I've been keeping my heart open in my ear to the ground with with regards to that. But anyway, so last time I was at Electrical, I was, or really whenever I'm around a, a recording engineer lately, I sort of ask them, like, is anybody asking you for Atmos mixes? Have you tried it? Like, what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. So Steve caught wind that I had been asking around and he hit me up because... He's like, yeah, this uh, record I worked on 30 years ago is getting remixed in Atmos and the band isn't really involved. I'm just trying to get myself in there to do some damage control to make sure that the record that they've been happy with for 30 years doesn't get ruined. Um, And record labels are just going to do that because it's content. It's very possible that it could get ruined. So we did an Atmos Nail the Mix. Oh, you did? Oh, cool. Yeah, we did it with Carson and Grant, and actually Dolby took part in it. So it was a two-day thing. Like, day one was the regular stereo mix, and day two was the Atmos version. Interesting. Dolby did, like, a two-hour presentation at the beginning where, I guess, the dude that runs their education outreach department, he came on the stream and explained how it works to make sure that everyone knew before Carson Grant did that must mix like that way we're all kind of on a level playing field as far as understanding goes. I'll have to watch that one. It's interesting. So the mix did come out in some ways cool, like in some ways is pretty cool. And I've come to the conclusion that Atmos, like the potential in it 
isn't with stuff that's already been recorded. It's with stuff that's going to be arranged and produced with Atmos in mind. Kind of like when a movie mix is being made for an Atmos theater, is being made with that in mind. Like if you're looking at a 30-year-old record that people were thinking vinyl or something, it may or may not work. But if like the actual musical arrangement is meant to be immersive and all that, I think that that'll be when that makes sense the most. And uh, then that the issue comes up of, well, which artists are going to, A, care enough, B, be able to afford the time to arrange the music like that, a producer who will be able to take the time to produce like that. I see that as being the blocker for at least heavy music. Yeah. I can only talk about it in abstract terms right now because I haven't really used it yet. But like, as I understand it, there's sort of two approaches. There's like the positional tracking, like gamer approach to it, which I don't think I like that, but I like the idea of like being in a stationary position and mixing in terms of objects and the music and reflections being all around you. I don't like the idea of, I don't know if you guys addressed this on this, but the idea that like when you move your head, the mix changes the way that some of like the, the game technology that Atmos is leveraging uh, works. That's not the true Atmos. That's like, uh, Oh, okay. It works with Atmos and it's, it is Atmos, but it's not really, I guess that's like the way that the way that it works in headphones and stuff isn't what it's meant to be. It's meant to be an immersive experience. And so like when you put on like AirPods and they do the positional thing and it gets phasey. I don't like that. Yeah. I don't think many people do. They're trying to simulate what Atmos does. It's like a simulation of Atmos with varying results, but especially with music it's going to sound crazy because of the phase shit going on. Like sometimes I've watched movies with it where it's kind of cool because you turn your head and that explosion is still in front of you or still behind you. Like that's kind of cool, I guess, like for a game or for a movie. But for music, it's a phase nightmare. Yeah, I mean, as a mixer, I'm trying to present a you know complete mix, complete piece of art that is meant to be listened to in the form that I'm presenting it. So it's like the music is voyeuristic. I don't want it to be interactive. I want it to be voyeuristic. Just like, you know, imagine like you were make you were like directing a horror movie and you gave somebody maybe you I guess you just have to do it in a completely different way. Cause if you put somebody give them like Oculus to go watch a horror movie and they can look around the corner to see like, oh yeah, there's something about to jump out of the corner. Like it, it screws with your storytelling. And I think mixing has a lot to do with storytelling. So I want it to be voyeuristic and not interactive so that I can be in control of how that story is told. That makes perfect sense. I am curious, just Sammy, from your perspective, do you have any interest at all in having a goat horror Atmos mix? I have no idea what Atmos is. There you go. I think that's most people. <laughs> so, so probably not. I bet you do know what it is, though. Sammy, why it's relevant to you right now is that there's not a ton of music content in Dolby Atmos. And so it was probably a year ago. So like labels started pushing to get Atmos content because that content gets prioritized on streaming services. Ah, I see. If people want to listen to immersive music, they don't have as large of a catalog of music to listen to. So what's available in immersive ends up more strongly positioned. So, you know, record labels are always kind of thinking about the shit that we don't care about, like selling records. And that's just like a way to get a little more traction on their stuff. I see. Until they have to pay for it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, a little detail. I'm saying that 
on behalf of my friends who have Atmos rooms, like they say that that's always the problem now is like they spent all this money on this Atmos room and like it's all exciting till the label realizes they have to double the budget. And then it's like, eh, about that. Maybe not. I would maybe have to experience it to fully understand what it is. When's the last time you went to a movie? Jesus Christ, dude. It's been at least 15 years since I've been to a movie theater. Really? Wow. <laughs> what do you do on days off a of tour? Days off a of tour, I'm normally sleeping or eating one of the two yeah we definitely eat on our days off <laughs> and we go to the movies yeah every once in a while the rest of the guys will go to a movie but then i'll be like after i eat i'm like i'm gonna take a nap hey everybody if you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by urm academy urm academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Actually, the, the last tour we just did in the States was awesome because we went camping on our days off. And like we were in a band, we were in a bandwagon, so we weren't like setting up tents or anything. We just kind of went to like campground slash ground things and got a bunch of food, had a fire, like played games, like uh, we played, played Big Jenga. It was awesome. Went on bike rides. We used to do, when I was in acid bath, we used to do that all the time because we couldn't afford, we couldn't afford hotel rooms. So in the days off, we were in a converted school bus at the time. So we just pull up into a campground and make a fire and buy some food and just cook. I've toured on a, a number of school buses. Never ends well. <laughs> no. When, well, the first one we had, we actually, um, this was my mom's idea, actually. We had a hammock hanging down the middle. 
like right down the middle aisle of the school bus, there's like a hammock. So if you got up there, then obviously there's no air conditioning. So you open up all the windows. Now you've got like air flowing over your whole body. It was the coolest place to be. That's a great idea. Thanks, Bob. A school bus should never be converted into a tour bus because, you know, those things are meant to drive around neighborhoods and not across the United States. And all sorts of problems happen that are very expensive. We didn't realize one of our buses had a problem with there's So there's like a switch on the rear door that's tied into the ignition. So if the rear doors open, they won't turn over. And we didn't know that. And so this like switch on the rear door was busted. And so we like sometimes couldn't start the bus for no reason. So we ended up just like having to crawl underneath it and like jump the terminals on the starter with a screwdriver every time we wanted to start the fucking thing. That led to a number of problems. Got stranded in Eastern Oregon once. You ever try the vegetable oil thing? I never have. That sounds like a total disaster. Like, I remember when that became a thing for like two months where people were like, we're going to convert. Well, that's how Green Man started. Oh, vegetable oil? Yeah, yeah. The company Green Man's like, they're just, like Ford just doesn't sell the diesels anymore. So they had to stop doing it. But their original vans were, were diesel vans that ran on veggie oil if you were able to get it. You know, the company grew to the point where they couldn't keep doing that. And now they're just like one of the biggest rental places in the States for, for bands. Interesting. Cause like, from what I understood, the reason that it crashed and burned generally when a band would try to do this is because where are you going to get veggie oil? They'd have to get it from dumpsters. Restaurants. Yeah. From out back, which is not legal. And you got to do something different every day. Exactly. All those things also run on diesel. See, I did not know that. Had a, they'd have a, like a little stock, a little, Petcock or whatever, Stopcock, um, under the dash where you could convert the oil tank and the diesel tanks were two separate tanks. That was the other problem. You lost cargo space because you had to have a separate oil tank from your diesel tank and a separate like fuel filter system for the oil and a heater and a filter for the oil. So like you basically were driving around with two different fuels, but you, you wouldn't get stranded because you could run them on diesel. Maybe the people I know who did it were just idiots. <laughs> well, they're musicians. Yes. Yes, aren't we all? Yeah. I want to talk about guitar tone some before we end this, because I know, Sammy, you're nuts with guitar tone, and the guitars sound great on this. I want to know how into it you guys got. Like, first of all, what is the main rhythm tone, and what was the process there? Well, I just stick to the tried and true Randall, that always sounds good on everything I've used it on. Which model is it? It's a, called a VMAX. They only made it for like a couple of years, and it's like a hybrid head to where the, the preamp is a tube preamp, but the power amp is like a solid-state power amp, but it's the way this is on. They designed the power amp. It reacts like a tube amp. It's very strange, but it's like the, the thing I like about those amps is that most solid-state amps, you can't get them like to ear-bleeding levels. Like a JCM 800, you could turn that up and it's like painful. For some reason, they did the power amp in that specific Randall to emulate the JCM 800. So it's like a, it's a solid state amp that is like painfully loud. So it has a shitload of headroom in the power section. But I, uh, I just used that one and uh, we stuck with the same old thing that we always use is just the Randall head through a Randall cabinet 
and uh, a Digitech Bad Monkey for an overdrive. So the same rig that the same rig you've been seeing for years. Yes. Playing. Yes, that one. That's great. What speakers? Well, we use uh, Vintage Thirty. Classic. That the same ones that have been in there. They probably need to be replaced very soon. We use that, and I think we blended in an Omega head just to kind of fill in the mid a little bit more. Interesting. And uh, well, a uh, thing that we did that was that we experimented with is that we we're trying different pickups because what we did was we stuck to my main shit that i've been using for years which is uh the guitar it's an esp custom but it has a seymour duncan active blackout metal in it which is a really hot pickup and for some reason that pickup works really well with a digitech bad monkey going into the randall so we did like two tracks with that then we did another two tracks after that like physically quadded yes there's four guitar tracks and i played all four of them then we just all we did differently is the same rig the same amp and same cabinet we plugged in uh my signature michael klein audio dibic overdrive pedal with a lawler db pickup so basically, the only thing we really changed was the guitar and the pedal. The amp stayed the same. The settings stayed the same on the head. We just swapped out the pedal and the guitar for a little bit of a different texture. Yeah, the, the, the DB has a lot of really clear low mid. It's a unique sounding pickup, and I, lo I love it. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. And there's a new one that I tried that really surprised me that I've been really thinking about putting in all my guitars is uh arcane incorporated have you ever heard of them no uh, they make a bunch of like the george lynch pickups and um the guy phil x i think he has a signature pickup but they came out with a new one called the doom well i like that name already so yeah i bought it on a whim just because of the name and uh i put it in one of my guitars and i was like this is pretty goddamn close to being the best of everything like it does the active thing that the seymour duncan does but it does that low end thing that the lawler does as well but it stays really clean. You ever tried the Hetfield EMGs? Yeah, I hate them. Okay. I pick like an asshole. <laughs> so I, every scratch that comes through, like my picking just comes. It's just like, uh, and it gets all the yeah. swishy, the swish. Like the way I play, I, I play with a lot of swish in my hands for some reason. And uh, certain pickups really pick that up. And I, it's like an EMG 81 definitely does it. And the Hetfield one, definitely did that because i want i wanted to love that pickup just for the sheer fact because i'm a huge james hetfield fan and have been since i was a kid so i really wanted to love that pickup but i put it in the guitar and i'm like this is not for me you know you know pickups are such a hard thing or really anything in a guitar signal path is a really hard thing to a b because like you know, you build a set, you, you grab a guitar, whatever's on top, you grab a pick, a pedal and a head and a cab, and you like build the sound with those things and you dial it all in and then you switch something out and you got to start dialing everything in all over. And so usually like when you switch something out, you're like, this is worse. Not always, but usually like whatever you switch out makes it makes the sound worse. So you got to do all that work again. You got to do all that work. And the hardest thing to a to AB is like cabs and speakers, especially because like, what are you going to do? Like play for half an hour and then take 45 minutes to change your speakers and then play again and then try to AB. I mean, the only way to really do it is to like take a DI and then record it. 
and then play the same performance back, you know, reamp the same performance with like, you know, a different speaker cab or a different speaker or a different microphone or whatever it is. It's like, you gotta be scientific about that stuff and, and limit your variables to actually know what's different. Yeah. It's tough. Like I, I used to always use EMGs and I've been using passive pickups more lately. I had to start ground up in order to really compare. Yeah. It's just, I have this thing to when I pick up a guitar with a different pickup, I will know within 15 seconds whether I'm going to like it or not. Kurt, have you ever heard Goat Whore Live? Have you ever seen him? Yeah, we've played shows together. Oh, okay. So you know Sammy's tone live. That's all. That that was the extent of my thought. You, I interrupted you. You were about to say something. Well, I think Kirk didn't really get to experience it because what was that? It was that fest in France that we played with you guys, right, Kirk? Which festival? Exodus played. There was like a, a fuckload of fucking bands. But anyway, my point being is like that on that trip in Europe, I just I had some shitty amp that I was using that I just had to make the best of what I had. Oh, yes. Yes, it wasn't like a regular shit. Yeah, I mean, that's why I've been using Helix. I was wondering because I was... Curious if you had heard these Randalls in person. I don't think that I have. I can tell you from touring with Goat Whore that, like, they just stand out. That guitar tone stands out from all the other bands. It just sounds, it's vicious, it has teeth, but it's clear. It's like everything. Is Randall from, like, Louisiana or something? <laughs> What's the deal with Louisiana and Randall? That would be fantastic, actually. But I, I think the whole thing with that is... The whole connection of the New Orleans bands with the Randalls is that at the time, I guess there was like a big Randall dealer here at some point oh, in like the God. 80s. And then all of a sudden, all these dudes started selling their amps and we'd pick them up in pawn shops for 75 bucks. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So you just cheap backup. Exactly. And I mean, it's a crowbar sound that Randall yeah. is. And the same thing with I Hate God, you know? It's funny, like everybody who uses uh, solid state amps kind of has a whole shitload of them too. The guys in Drop Dead, like Ben, Ben has like this one, I forget which model, but there's like one particular crate he likes. And he's got like literally like 20 of them because 19 are broken at any given time. There's some of them that aren't very... uh trustworthy as far as dependability goes yeah but they're if they're cheap enough to be disposable yeah uh, that's why you know i mean kirk from crowbar dude he has like a ridiculous amount of those things like he has a, a wall of just head that he's like i'll pick this one up on tour for like 75 bucks on a pawn shop but he's been using orange lately right like the cr 120s i think he was using the orange for a while then he plugged in the randall again and said oh i missed this and just sort of Use the Randall again. The oranges are cool, though. Have you tried a quilter? Yes, I have one. Yeah. What are those? You don't know a quilter? No. Oh, my God. It's like a power amp, basically. Well, they have a lot of different models. The one that I use is the OD202. Like Q-U-I-L-T-E-R? Yeah. So it's it's Pat Quilter, who is the founder of QSC, the power amp company. Um, he sold that and um, started making guitar and bass amps. And they, they do have products that are just power amps that are like pedal board sized power amps. So if you go basically from your pedal board right to a cab or they have, they've got, you know, combos, they have heads, but the, the heads that I used are, I mean, I don't know, they're like maybe eight inches. They're tiny. Wow. That's convenient. But, and they're light. And they are indestructible. So I played a show a few months ago in Austin, Texas at noon with the sun 
beating down outside with the sun beating directly on top of the amps and with them played wide open. And when I was done, you could literally fry an egg on these things and they didn't care. They just kept working. You can plug them into 100 volts of line power. You can plug them into 240 volts of line power. They don't care. You can plug them into a 4-ohm cab. You can plug them into a 16-ohm cab. They don't care. Like you can just abuse them and they keep working and they sound great. And, you know, it may not be your dream recording amp, but like for live, like they're loud, they sound great, they don't break um, and they're light and portable. And it's a really an awesome touring amp. Good to know. And so like, well, lately I've just been using them as power amps. So I, I play like a, Hel- a Line 6 Helix live. And so I'll just go into the power amp in on my things. But if I didn't have that, I would still just use those things and, you know, have a regular analog pedal board in front of them. And because you can just throw them in your pedal board case and fly all over the world and doesn't matter what kind of shitty backline you get, you can still have your sound. Good to know. Like these are things that are now on my mind again. So yeah, <laughs> and they are loud as hell. Good. Yeah. Like really fucking loud. Like it's insane. They're still a young company too, so they're still like listening to players, and they're still always coming out with new products all the time. And you know, I do, I do get to talk with them once in a while and kind of chime in on a wish list of things that I'd like for future products and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a cool company worth looking into if you haven't. I want to hear a little bit about well, two things. Number one, I want to hear about your experiences with the Helix. And then number two, Sammy, you, I want to know if you installed those uh, neural plugins and if you did, what you thought of them. All right. So Helix, Line 6 Helix is cool. One reason I started to explore it was... Um, Ben Adrian, who does a lot of the amp modeling at Line 6, is like an old Midwest noise rock guy. And all those people are just total tone hounds. So I figured if it was good enough for him and if he was working on it, then it was worth it's worth me exploring. I love it because it's a whole family of products. You know, there's a version that's just effects. They've got a version that's sort of like a scaled down, small, super portable version. They've got the regular Helix, which is what I use. They have Helix Native, which is a plugin. And all of the stuff is compatible. It all looks the same. When you use the desktop editor for the Helix floor unit, it looks the same as the Helix Native plugin. You can create plugins in your DAW using Helix Native that you can send to your pedal board. Everything plays really nice. Wow. That is a huge, huge deal, actually. Yeah. Another interesting thing about Helix Native is that it sort of does like a hard cap of DSP so that you can't build a preset that's any deeper than you can build using the floor unit, which is nice. So you don't you don't get yourself into into trouble like where you you've built something that you can't translate to the floor, even though your computer has you know greater DSP than the floor unit. You know, there's a large there's a large array of of amp sims. You know, and cabs. You can obviously load third party IRs. And but what I love it for is the GUI is very intuitive. The routing is infinitely flexible. And there's also a bunch of different modes that you can run it in. So Converge has always been, since we've been a four-piece, we've always been a two-amp band. And so I'll I'll have two different amp sounds that are hard pans. And I do this in Helix also. So my just quickly, my my single path in Helix for Converge is you know, mono guitar in, it auto senses the impedance of the guitar, and then like gates, distortions, EQs compressors, uh, delays, all that stuff. And eventually the signal gets to become stereo, usually from like a ping pong delay, followed by a stereo reverb. You can assign the switches in any way you want. And I have like my delay and reverb switching together, for example, I don't have to have two switches. And then once it's been split to stereo, then it goes into a looper. 
so that I can then basically like overdub parts. So if I want to play two different guitar parts at the same time, I can record it on one side and then play and mute the input to that side as I'm playing it and then play over the top of that. Those two signals go through two different amp models and then out quarter inch sends before it gets to IRs. So the quarter inch sends go to the quilter power amps on stage. So I'm using regular guitar amps, regular guitar cabs on stage for stage volume. That stuff is not mic'd. And then it goes to IRs and then IRs to front of house. So it's a, and there's also a pseudo doubler on one of the amps. So one of my, the right side is, is slightly delayed and detuned to broaden the signal to open up the center channel for the rest of the band to live in. Um, so we're not fighting for space in the center channel. That works out really super well. And I run Helix in what's called stomp box mode. So it's just one preset for the entire set and I press pedals oh, nice. uh, like I would on an analog pedal board. Only I have, I have the switches assigned so that like, like I have a gate before and after my distortion pedal. So I'm gating, the gate is sensitive to the swing of the guitar um, incoming signal. So it's clamping down before the distortion, but it's also clamping down after the distortion to kill any hiss that's added because of the distortion so but those are both switched with one button and then like i said before like my delay and reverb those things turn on together and then for like syncing up reverbs with or delays with a song i just use tap tempo and so that's really straightforward that required a bunch of upfront work to get it to get it set up but like once it's set up now it's like very consistent from day to day everywhere we go on on stage and it's like one less thing for our sound guy to worry about now for the blood moon version of converge that stuff is like a lot more complicated and for that i have steve brodsky who also plays in that version of the band he and i both have helixes we both have full stereo rigs but for that band we use in preset and in, in snapshots mode. So we have a different preset for each song. And so it, we might even have different amp models, different cab models, different effects set up. We have like all the effects tempos pre-baked into the presets. And then snapshots mode, it doesn't change a preset because there's a subtle dropout when you change a preset. But what it does is it can control the on-off state of everything in the signal path. And it can also control any parameter of anything in the signal path. So if you have a delay that you want to have a certain sound on for the verse, and then you have a different delay for the chorus, you can change the delay tempo for verse versus chorus. That's great. If you only need an expression pedal for the solo, you can have the expression pedal part of the preset, but you can have it disabled until the solo comes. Like like a solo that I play in one of the songs, I use the expression pedal as a send into like an effect that's similar to like an Earthquake or Devices Rainbow Machine. So I'm not... That, that thing is not active until I get to solo. And then when solo comes on, now I've got an expression pedal that's a send and I can send as much signal into this effect as I want or take it off for certain notes. So it's, it becomes very expressive. So in snapshots mode, we just have our screen is just, you know, each button says like intro, verse, chorus, chorus two, bridge, outro, solo. And for that, all of our levels are baked in and all of our panning. So we both have like the pseudo doubler effects, but because there's both of us, Ordinarily, like if we're both playing rhythm, like I'm panned left and Steve is panned right. But let's say that Steve take, takes a solo. I press like the Steve solo button and now I'm pseudo doubled left and right. Steve presses his solo button, his pan moves to the middle and his volume jumps up because now he's soloing in the middle. Or like if he's using the acoustic simulator, he might be panned to the sides and I might be making some weird noises with the auto pan on. So we're basically doing all of the guitar mixing 
within the the presets and the snapshots of Helix. We could even we could even sync it up with MIDI if we wanted to do like all the switching MIDI wise. We don't do that. We still play that stuff with our feet, but we could switch it through MIDI because the show the show runs on Ableton. So our front of the house engineer, he's just worrying about drums and vocals, and like everything else is already like preset inside our helixes so it works out really great for our production it was a lot of work up front to program it but i love the challenge of doing that and i love the fact that i get to play those kind of shows and then i also get to play like you know at noon on a sidewalk in austin with the sun beating down on me like you know blaringly loud you know getting, getting to do both is, is really fun and, and the helix is flexible enough that it can work in both situations the only thing that sucks about it in my opinion well two things that i don't like one there's no adjustment for brightness of the screen. So if you're playing an outdoor show, it's really hard to read. And the other thing is that when you engage the tuner, it mutes the output. So if you're someone like me who likes to make noise and loop noise between songs as a way to fill space while you're changing guitars, you can't do that with the Helix. You have to use an external tuner to mute, to mute yourself or like an external looper or something in order to make that happen. Interesting. So that's my that's my five minute helix helix pitch. Thank you for the uh, comprehensive answer. I know that was a lot. No, that's that's <laughs> great. Thank you. I've turned a lot of my friends on to it, so I'm like uh, I'm kind of used to do, giving the pitch. Well, I know it's great because they like have sponsored some URM stuff, and John Brown has used them. I don't know if he uses it now, but I didn't have a reason to go that deep with it when they sponsored URM, but I'm aware of how powerful it is and uh, sounds awesome. Yeah. I think all of the modeling stuff is really good right now. It's just a matter of like finding something with the appropriate feature set yeah, and much. durability to what works with your, uh, your rig. Yeah. I have a quad cortex sitting here that they just sent me and I haven't gotten the chance to like totally explore it, but the little bit that I have, this thing is fucking awesome. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, we just toured with, we just toured with Meshuga and they were using those. I think they were using those anyway. That's all I need to hear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if they're using it, it's got the stamp of approval. Uh, Sammy, so did you ever uh, install those plugins? Yes, I did. And uh, as far as my favorite, the one that gets me the closest to where I need to be is the Fortin Cali. That's a good one. I tried a bunch of different ones, and that one I just keep gravitating towards because it sounds – I can get it close to the Randall because apparently the Randall was based off of a Marshall, and the Fortin Cali is basically based off of a Marshall. But, yeah. The uh, Fortin Cali Suite is definitely my favorite as far as all the plugins go. And when I'm demoing stuff at home, when I lay the bass tracks down on the on the songs, I use the uh, parallax on the bass because there's some sick bass tones in that one as well. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, man. Like, so when I started playing again, you know, at URM and stuff, we've been talking about this stuff, but I didn't play through it. When I started playing again, I just... I had it all sent and was like, holy shit, this stuff has gotten a lot better since before. Like when I stopped playing, amp sims sucked. Now I'm back and they're great. Yeah. It was shocking how much better they are now. Yeah. And it's like with the thing with the neural stuff with the guitar plugins is if you want to go down that rabbit hole as far as like going into different cabinet simulations and shit, you can always load that shit in. And you basically you could have an unlimited supply of cabinets as granted that you have a good sounding cabinet sim. You could just make it 
pretty goddamn close to how you want it to sound. It's pretty shocking. Sammy, have you ever tried the two notes stuff? No, I heard they're fucking awesome though. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I and mean, you know, you could you could use your whole Randall rig uh, along with that. That's what I was looking into because I have like a, a pretty good collection of like old marshals and stuff like that. And to record them at home is basically that's not happening. Unless the neighbors are going on vacation or something. <laughs> so I was looking into the uh, two note stuff to where I could run a tube head through that and not damage it. Yeah. And just have it go straight into my door and be like, wow, you know. But I haven't got a chance to try one out yet, but I heard great things. Well, there's like a little hack to that where you can, you can basically, like, it's not, you don't even have to go through the whole process of making an IR. But you can use like I think it's the reload. They're like reactive load box. So the way that's intended to work is it goes between your head and your cab, or it goes in place of a cab because it's like, you know, got a big resistor in it and, and heat sinks and stuff and can dissipate all that, all that uh, wattage going into it. It lets you record a signal right out of the, basically right out of the back of your head into your DAW. So you can do that, but you can also record out of the cab. So like next time you're recording a record, you could take one of those things, put it between your head and your cab, mic up the cab, get the sound of the cab mic'd up and record that, but also at the same time record the, the non-cab version of the head. Right. So now you've got, you know, say no cab on the left, cab on the right, but it's the exact same performance. You can match the non-cab thing to the mic'd up cab and just save an EQ profile. And that sort of functions the same as an IR without going through the whole process of creating impulse. Interesting. And if you save that preset, you just have that sound in your library as like a here's one of the times my cab's been mic'd. And with this, with this amp and plug it right in. I'm a caveman when it comes to that kind of stuff. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing how many different things you can do and how many different ways you can do it now. And so many good ways too. I'm definitely trying to learn all this stuff and try to get involved with it. But then, you know, I, I kind of get lost and just I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. In some ways, I feel like <laughs> going so deep in this stuff has like caused my guitar playing to suffer. Because I'm spending so much more time like fiddling with knobs than I than I do with playing riffs. That will happen. I mean, it, it's it's kind of scary, you know. That's why I kind of shy away from a lot of that new stuff, where I just kind of stick to what I know works for me. Yeah, I can tell you that this time around, I'm being very disciplined about that. I'm like purposefully not going too far down those rabbit holes, so I can focus mostly on playing. Just because that's exactly what happened. The more I got into recording and everything, my playing just took the back seat because there's only so much time. You tend to be, I guess, better at your craft if you're specialized. I just get bored by it, though. Fair enough. Like, I <laughs> I guess I'd rather be a jack-of-all-trades master of none than, like, master of one trade. So I got bored, too. But I think that because it's been so long and, like, fully back at it, there's, like, years of, like, build-up to just playing. And it's not boring at all. But... Back then, it did get a little boring, and I, that's why I wanted to like record and wanted to go down several rabbit holes for that reason. It's hard to earn a living performing music. Oh, yeah, that. <laughs> As you know from being in a band, you're the last person to get paid. Everybody gets paid before the band does. So, you know, if you can find a career path that's outside of performing music or that's but, but still adjacent to it and still vaulting it, like that's, I think, a little bit more sustainable long term. Yeah, in most cases. 
Well, dudes, I want to thank you both for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, not a problem. It's good seeing you all. Yeah, thank you for having us again. This is awesome. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.